Chapter Twelve, Part One of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. President McKinley and the Neo Republicanism, Part One. There was something symbolically significant in the pageant which accompanied the inauguration of President McKinley. Such displays in other years had exhibited the haphazard, easy-going lack of management with which Americans are wont to improvise their public ceremonials. But on the 4th of March, 1897, the scene in Washington was one that might have fitly graced a European capital. Every detail had been studied carefully beforehand and was carried out with absolute precision. The great avenues were well policed. The crowds were efficiently controlled. There were no delays, no moments of embarrassment, no awkward pauses. The military review was especially effective. Instead of masses of raw militiamen marking often awkwardly and producing a bizarre effect by the diversity of their motley uniforms, there now defiled before the president column after column of regular troops, whose perfect discipline and training made the sight of them a splendid spectacle. The finest cavalry regiments in the service had been drawn upon to render this inaugural review exceptionally brilliant, while the artillery and infantry were not inferior in the precision of their evolutions. The civic part of the parade was subordinated to the military, but even the marching club swung by the presidential stand with something of the élan of veteran troops. The Republican Party was coming back to power as the party of organization, of discipline, of unquestioning obedience to leadership and the spirit of this new regime was easily perceptible, even in the ceremony which marked the day of its beginning. Mr. Cleveland remained at the side of his successor until the formalities were all concluded. He had spent the last few hours of his presidency in a most characteristic fashion, examining and signing bills, and the marks of ink upon his ungloved hands bore witness to his diligence. His face was ruddy, and he chatted and laughed with Mr. McKinley as the two were driven slowly to the capital. At last, the burden was lifted from his shoulders, and he could again enjoy the tranquil life of a private citizen. Though the reins of power were passing from his hands to those of a political opponent, he probably felt no regret. It was his financial policy which the Republicans, after bitterly assailing, had been forced to make their own. The great battle of the preceding year had been fought over this one question. And so the victory which Mr. McKinley had gained was, in a very real sense, a victory for Mr. Cleveland. President McKinley's inaugural address contained, as might have been expected, an earnest commendation of high protective duties. In it, he also expressed a strong desire for peace with foreign nations. He recalled his own consistent attitude as a defender of the reformed civil service, and he intimated that the currency system of the United States should be placed upon a definite and satisfactory basis. There was nothing very noteworthy in his remarks. They were received by the press with a general, if somewhat perfunctory, approval. Perhaps the comment of an English writer best expressed what most persons really thought. It is a mild and not unpleasing effusion. The tone is a little smug and goody-goody, but kindly. Note 1, page 519. In truth, the country had for a time grown weary of political strife and was disposed to give the new administration a free hand. The President showed his conservative cast of mind by appointing a cabinet of rather elderly men, only one of them being less than sixty years of age. The oldest of them all, Mr. John Sherman, a lately senator from Ohio, was also the most distinguished in the length and value of his public service. 
he now became secretary of state though under circumstances which made the appointment by no means a source of unmixed pleasure to his friends mr sherman had long been one of the foremost leaders of the republican party as a member of the lower house before the civil war he had ably advocated the free soil cause and as senator during president lincoln's administration he had upheld the hands of the great liberator as secretary of the treasury under president hayes he had brought about the resumption of specie payments in so masterly a manner as not to cause the slightest ripple on the financial waters twice in eighteen eighty and again in eighteen eighty eight he seemed likely to be his party's chosen candidate for the presidency ten years afterwards his name was permanently associated with two highly important measures the silver purchase act of eighteen ninety and the so-called antitrust law of the same year note two page five twenty he was now an old man of seventy-four and had richly earned the right to finish his remaining years in the dignified and useful place which he had long held in the senate but unhappily for mr sherman his own desires clashed with the strong-willed purpose of mark hanna that appetite of person now demanded his reward he had gained the presidency for mr mckinley and in return he wished to be a senator of the united states he was not a man to be put off, and therefore Mr. Sherman was sacrificed to Hannah's urgency. The open humiliation of so conspicuous a statement would have been too much for even Hannah to attempt, but the desired end was reached by indirection, and Senator Sherman experienced the sort of honorific elimination which an English party leader once described as being kicked upstairs. Mr. McKinley offered to make Mr. Sherman his Secretary of State, and the aged Senator knew that he must accept he felt no especial interest in diplomacy querulous and feeble and already verging upon senility he shrank from taking up new duties for which he felt himself no longer fitted yet he was well aware that he had no choice he must make way for mr hannah and hence he resigned the post of senator to become the nominal chief of the new cabinet a pathetic figure destined very soon to pass away entirely from public life the other ministers were men of good executive ability although of no especial prominence in recognition of the aid given to mr mckinley by the gold democrats one of their number mr lyman j cage a chicago banker was made secretary of the treasury note three page five twenty one the war portfolio went to general russell a alger of michigan a veteran of the civil war who had subsequently become known as an adroit politician and successful man of business President McKinley's Secretary of the Navy was Mr. John D. Long of Massachusetts, a gentleman of scholarly taste who had, however, no slight experience in public life, and who was soon to show himself to be an unusually capable administrator. The rest of the cabinet, as originally constituted, may be dismissed with a mere mention. The Attorney General was Mr. Joseph McKenna of California. The Postmaster General was Mr. James A. Gary of Maryland. The Secretary of the Interior was Mr. Cornelius N. Bliss of New York, and the Secretary of Agriculture was Mr. James Wilson of Iowa. President McKinley's first important official act was the issuance of a proclamation convening Congress in special session on March 15th for the purpose of providing additional revenue for the government and to revise the tariff. Although the tariff question had been entirely subordinated in the late campaign, and although Mr. McKinley had secured his great majorities wholly as a defender of the gold standard, it was plain that for the present he intended to ignore the money issue and to use his power to restore the high protective duties of 1890. The Democratic opposition criticized this purpose, asserting that it involved an element of duplicity. 
it was declared that Mr. McKinley could not have been elected merely as a protectionist, yet his first concern was now a reversion to the very policy which the country had condemned in 1892. This criticism was unfair. The President fully intended to secure salutary legislation for the reform of the currency, but the time was not yet auspicious for such legislation. Although the Republican Party had more than a working majority in both houses of Congress, Note 4, page 522. There were still so many Republican senators favorable to the cause of free silver as to prevent concerted and successful action toward legalizing the gold standard. The President knew that the defeat of Mr. Bryan had put an end to all anxiety in the world of finance, and so, naturally enough, he turned to the revision of the tariff, a policy with which his name had been so long associated. But when he argued that a new tariff act was necessary to augment the revenues of the government, he was on more debatable ground. The Wilson Act of 1894, though in many respects imperfect from the point of view of the tariff reformer, was not justly chargeable with the falling off in revenue during President Cleveland's term of office. In fact, had not President Harrison's Secretary of the Treasury forced a balance? Note 5, page 523. The year 1892-93 would have shown a deficiency of nearly $48 million for that period. Furthermore, the heaviest deficit under President Cleveland's administration, $69 million in 1893-94, occurred while the McKinley Act was still in force and before the Wilson Act had become operative. Indeed, each succeeding year witnessed an improvement in the Treasury balances, and in the very month when Mr. McKinley called Congress together to restore the high protective tariff, the Treasury report showed an actual surplus of nearly $9 million, the customs receipts for that month having been exceeded only twice in a period of more than 40 years. It was plain enough, then, that the Wilson Act was in no wise responsible for the temporary loss of revenue from 1893 to 1895, and that if left alone it would now provide an ample income for the ordinary needs of the government. But in reality the question was not one of revenue at all. The old protected industries were clamoring for the full favors which they had formerly enjoyed. Not from altruistic motives had the manufacturing interests contributed heavily to the funds of the Republican Party in the late campaign. Their gifts had, on the contrary, been a strictly business investment, and the time had now come for them to receive full payment of their claims. When Congress met in extra session, a remarkable and quite unprecedented condition of affairs was at once made known. It showed more clearly than ever the wonderful compactness and machine-like efficiency of the Republican organization since that party had passed under the control of businessmen in politics. The elections of the preceding November had determined the composition of the new Congress, and so the leaders of the Republican majority, after conferring together, agreed upon a plan of action which took slight heed of precedent or of constitutional forms. It was planned that Mr. Reed should be re-elected Speaker of the House, and Mr. Reed in his turn indicated the Republican representatives whom he would appoint to membership in the Committee of Ways and Means. These gentlemen, therefore, in advance of their actual appointment and before the new Congress was convened, had already framed a tariff bill. As soon as the extra session of March 15th began, the program was carried out to the letter. Mr. Reed again became Speaker. He appointed the committee precisely as he had agreed to do, and its chairman, Mr. Nelson Dingley, Jr. of Maine, at once reported to the House the bill which he and his Republican associates had prepared. Never did a controversial party measure so quickly pass the lower chamber. 
although the dingley bill as it was called filled one hundred and sixty-three printed pages only twenty-two pages of it were considered and discussed upon the floor of the house mr reed's rigorous rulings made short work of the disheartened opposition and in less than two weeks the bill was transmitted to the senate note six page five twenty five where it was referred to the committee on finance in the senate its schedules were carefully examined and amended note seven page five twenty five the bill as reported by the finance committee was by no means so very radical a measure as might have been expected though it was essentially protectionist in its general character it contained some duties that were intended solely to produce revenue and in many items the purely protective duties had been appreciably lowered but in the open senate a different tendency was seen here was in part a repetition of the history of the wilson bill note eight page five twenty five now as in eighteen ninety four there was an attempt on the part of disinterested senators to make the measure a rational one from an economic and financial standpoint but now as in eighteen ninety four a number of senators who represented the great corporations and the manufacturers interposed on behalf of their friends and benefactors for more than two months the schedules were discussed item by item and when the bill passed the senate july seventh it contained eight hundred seventy amendments like the wilson bill it was then sent to a conference committee of both houses there however its fate was very different from that of its democratic predecessor republican organization and party discipline were far too good to permit an open rupture between the conflicting interests the influence of president mckinley and the firmness of speaker reed compelled an agreement so that on july twenty fourth all details having been adjusted the dingley bill passed both houses of congress and became a law on the whole it resembled the mckinley act of eighteen ninety though the average rate of duty on imports was slightly lowered some features however deserve attention the wilson act had remitted the duties upon wool the dingley act not only restored them but even made them higher in spite of the fact that the increase was earnestly opposed by manufacturers of woolen goods the secretary of the wool manufacturers association had said to the committee of the house never until he had experience under free wool did the manufacturer realize the full extent of the disadvantages he suffers by reason of the wool duty note nine page five twenty six the reason why the tax on wool was restored in spite of so strong a protest is curiously illuminating as an example of the complexities of tariff framing free wool had so stimulated the manufacture of woolen goods as to create an exceptional demand for the raw material this demand had led ranch owners in the far western states to raise sheep instead of cattle and it was found that they could produce wool cheaper than could the ohio farmers the latter therefore demanded a high tariff upon wool so as to limit the american manufacture of woolen goods and thus to keep down the demand for wool to the amount which they could themselves supply note ten page five twenty six in other words the heavy duty upon wool imposed by the dingley act was not intended to protect americans against foreign competitors but to favor one set of americans who lived in a republican state against another set of their own countrymen the wool duty therefore both hampered the woolen manufacturers of the united states and at the same time actually killed the new wool growing industry west of the mississippi river this fact was pointed out as an ideal illustration of the essential selfishness and economic folly of protective legislation it certainly emphasized the truth of general hancock's declaration in eighteen eighty that the tariff is a local issue the duties on silks and linens were also considerably augmented those on cottons were somewhat lower than in the mckinley act 
On most metals, the rates of the Wilson Act were not greatly altered, while copper was even retained upon the free list. But on manufactured articles of iron and steel, the McKinley rates were practically restored. Of more interest were the sugar schedules, over which in 1894 the action of the Senate had created so much scandal because of the favor shown to the Sugar Trust. Note 11, page 527. While the Dingley Bill was under consideration, the Sugar Senators had in committee sought to secure new advantages for the Trust, and had reported an entirely new scheme of sugar duties, partly specific and partly ad valorem, complicated in its effects and difficult to explain, except as a means of making concessions under disguise to the refiners. Note 12, page 527. This complicated scheme was rejected by the Senate itself, which, however, amended the House schedule in such a way as to increase the differential to the advantage of the trust. But upon this point the House stood firm. It would take away none of the privileges which the trust already enjoyed, but it would not augment them. In the end, the Senate was obliged to yield, thus leaving the existing situation substantially unchanged. One other feature of the Dingley Bill was not without significance. As originally reported, it imposed a tax of 25% upon books and scientific instruments imported for the use of schools, colleges, and other institutions of learning and it also levied an import duty of 20% on foreign works of art. This called out some very sharp criticism. Wrote one critic, The Dingley tax on books and instruments for libraries and colleges, along with the renewed tax on art, shows the country how much the Republican Party really cares for the intelligence of the nation, to which it so earnestly appealed in the last campaign. It was never tired of boasting of the way the educated man of the land had rallied to its support, irrespective of former party preferences, by making it difficult for us to take advantage of the discoveries and improvements of the leaders of thought and investigation in other lands, we simply condemn ourselves to be losers in the race. Taxing knowledge of this kind is both a mark and a cause of barbarism. Free art, of course, had to go. Paintings in oil and watercolors, admitted free by the Wilson Bill, have made it dangerously easy for our artists and the visitors to our public galleries to become familiar with foreign masterpieces. What has protection to do with education or art? Nothing, except to cripple them in every way. Note 13, page 528. So much opposition was aroused by these clauses in the Dingley Bill as to lead to their modification. The duty on books and instruments was stricken out. The tax on works of art, however, still remained, in spite of the fact that nearly all American artists were opposed to it, and that no one outside of Congress had any interest in its retention. Taken as a whole, the Dingley Act made it plain that the extreme protectionists were still in control of the Republican Party, and that they had in no wise been affected by the experience of the past. This act, indeed, in several of its provisions, carried the protective principle further than it had ever been extended. The anomaly was presented of gigantic industries which were actually underselling foreign competitors in foreign markets, yet which were at the same time demanding from Congress a duty to protect them against competition in the United States. Such a duty enabled them to compel Americans to pay more for certain American goods than the foreigner paid for precisely the same articles. This was the reductio ad absurdum of the neo-republican doctrine which had been rapidly developed since 1883. The businessman in politics, of whom Senator Hanna was a type, was not, however, disturbed by this economic monstrosity and its practical results. 
he knew that his own class reaped immense benefits from it, and perhaps he entertained a pious hope that it might in some way incidentally benefit the people as a whole. But his first thought was for himself alone, since this was business, and it gave him no concern if the tariff system of his time embodied a concrete defiance of all the principles which the early Republican protectionists, Lincoln, Morrill, Chase, Fessenden, and Stevens, had avowed. Note 14, page 529. If the people of the United States felt but a languid interest in an economic measure so important as the Tariff Act of 1897, the fact is easily explained. For ten years American politics had turned almost exclusively upon questions of finance, and the culminating struggle of 1896 had left the great body of citizens wearied to the point of exhaustion. Nations, like individuals, are capable of being bored and just as the salutary but uninteresting domestic reforms of Gladstone finally made Englishmen out of sheer ennui turn to the brilliantly spectacular foreign policy of Disraeli, so after a decade of controversy over bimetallism and free silver and tariff schedules, most Americans were eager for some less prosaic theme of public interest. The economic era had itself represented a reaction from the long agonies of the Civil War, and now the swing of the pendulum found a younger generation impatient of the commonplace and avidly alert for a new and stimulating national issue. There has been noted in the course of the present narrative a growing tendency on the part of the United States to concern itself with its international relations. The intervention in Samoa against the aggression of the Germans was the first evidence of this new drift. The Chilean imbroglio was another. The Venezuelan incident was still another. Note 15, page 530. Not without significance also was the fact that in the American diplomatic service the rank of ambassador had been created by Act of Congress in 1893, and that this rank had been conferred upon the minister's plenipotentiary to Great Britain, France, Germany, Russia, and Italy. The Republican Convention of 1896 had, as already recorded in these pages, urged an increase of the Navy, the annexation of Hawaii, and the purchase from Denmark of her West Indian possessions. All these circumstances served to show very plainly that the national activities would not long be confined to matters of purely domestic interest, but that the United States, grown conscious of its strength, was already stirred by an imperial ambition and the spirit of adventure. As it happened, a situation existed at its very gates which quickened this new restlessness into an aggressive mood. In February 1895, the native inhabitants of Cuba, driven to desperation by the long misrule of their Spanish masters, rose in a revolt which gradually reduced the island to a condition resembling one of anarchy. Unable to defeat the disciplined troops of Spain in open battle, the rebels resorted to a guerrilla warfare, cutting off small detachments, burning plantations, raiding villages, and endeavoring by incessant activity to sap the energy and exhaust the resources of their opponents. A Cuban republic had been proclaimed, but it had no capital and had organized no government. It had not even an army in the proper sense of the word, and its prowling bands of ill-armed peasants appeared and disappeared like phantoms. Nevertheless, although Spain had sent out to Cuba no less than 200,000 troops, the insurgents under the leadership of Maximo Gomez and Antonio Maceo fairly held their own, until by the end of 1896 they roamed at will over three-fourths of the inland country. Note 16, page 531. The colors of Spain still floated above the cities, but the insurrectos were practically masters of the interior. 
Meanwhile, Cuba, one of the richest and most fertile islands in the world, was being swiftly ruined. The furious devastation of property continued. Plantations and villages were laid waste, while it seemed as though any definite end to the destructive process might be deferred for years. The revolution in Cuba passed through two distinct stages. In 1895, the Spanish governor-general was Martinez Campos, a high-souled, chivalrous soldier who waged war in accordance with the usages of high civilization. His ill success, however, led the Spanish government to replace him by General Valeriano Weller, a harshly tyrannical commander of the type of the infamous Baron Haino. Weller was directed to crush the insurrection at any cost, and on October 21, 1896, he issued an order which put into effect his so-called policy of reconcentration. From this moment, the war ceased to be merely a war of repression and became a war of extermination. As the great body of the Cuban peasantry sympathized with the rebellion and gave aid and comfort to the rebels, Whaler's order directed that these people be driven in herds to the vicinity of the fortified towns. There they were penned in like cattle, and were compelled to subsist under conditions which no cattle could have endured. Deprived of their homes and with little clothing, they lay upon the earth with foul air, foul water, and foul food, until emaciated and diseased, they died like flies. In all, there were some 400,000 of these reconcentrados, and their condition excited at once the pity and the indignation of the world. When the war in Cuba first broke out, American sympathy was very naturally extended to the insurgents. A little later it was seen that American interests were directly involved. As President Cleveland said to Congress in his last annual message, Note 17, page 532, It, Cuba, lies so near to us as to be hardly separated from our territory. Our actual pecuniary interest in it is second only to that of the people and government of Spain. It is reasonably estimated that at least from 30 million to 50 million dollars of American capital are invested in plantations and in railroad, mining and other business enterprises on the island. The volume of trade between the United States and Cuba, which in 1889 amounted to about $64 million, rose in 1893 to about $103 million, and in 1894, the year before the present insurrection broke out, amounted to nearly $96 million. Besides this large pecuniary stake in the fortunes of Cuba, the United States finds itself inextricably involved in the present contest in other ways both vexatious and costly. The last sentence here quoted refers to the fact that many American citizens resident in Cuba had been arrested and ill-treated by Spanish officials on the charge of aiding the Cuban rebels, and that these arrests had led to incessant friction between the government of the United States and that of Spain. In 1895, a Spanish ship had even fired upon an American passenger steamer, the Alianza, when the latter was beyond the three-mile limit. Furthermore, in the exercise of its neutrality, the United States was compelled to guard its long line of seacoast against filibustering expeditions and to endure the recriminations directed against it by the Spanish press and people. Nevertheless, for the space of a year and a half, Mr. Cleveland, following the example of President Grant during the so-called Ten Years' War, Note 18, page 533, had studiously abstained from interference with Spanish operations in the island. 
while offering from time to time his friendly mediation to secure a cessation of hostilities he had respected the rights of spain and had so strictly enforced the statutes against filibustering expeditions as to make himself exceedingly unpopular among american sympathizers with cuba finally however after whaler's reconcentration order had been issued and after it was fairly evident that spain could not repress the revolution president cleveland in his annual message of december seventh eighteen ninety six showed plainly that the government of the united states would not much longer maintain a passive attitude recapitulating the facts with regard to cuba he wrote some sentences of ominous import he said neither has spain made good her authority nor have the insurgents made good their title to be regarded as an independent state except in towns the whole island is given over to anarchy it cannot be reasonably assumed that the hitherto expectant attitude of the united states will be indefinitely maintained when the inability of spain to deal successfully with the insurrection has become manifest a situation will be presented in which our obligations to the sovereignty of spain will be superseded by higher obligations which we can hardly hesitate to recognize and to discharge the united states is not a nation to which peace is a necessity apart from the natural sympathy with which americans regarded any struggle for political independence and apart also from any commercial interests which were threatened by the cuban insurrection there was still another reason for american resentment against spain thousands of citizens recalled a grievous outrage against the dignity of the united states for which spain had been responsible in the past and which had never been avenged this was the notable affair of the virginius on october thirty first in eighteen seventy three during the former revolution in cuba an american merchant vessel the virginius was forcibly captured on the high seas by the spanish gunboat tornado the american flag was hauled down and trampled upon with every possible sign of derision and the virginius itself with its captain passengers and crew of whom nine were american citizens were taken to the port of santiago de cuba captain fry and the ship's company were cast into prison and by order of the spanish governor general buriel were tried by drumhead court-martial fifty-three of the fifty-nine were condemned and shot and the survivors also were sentenced to be executed at this moment however there steamed into the harbour of santiago the british man-of-war niobe commanded by captain afterwards sir lambton lorraine when he learned of what had been done and of what was then impending he wasted no time in official correspondence swinging his ship about broadside on he sent a curt note to general buriel intimating that unless the order of execution were suspended the niobe's guns would at once open fire upon the city note nineteen page five thirty five general buriel revoked his order immediately but none the less fifty-three unarmed persons had been taken from under the protection of the american flag and had been shot to death indignation in the united states was extreme president grant took measures to place the navy upon a war footing and caused a strong protest to be made to the spanish minister who with true castilian haughtiness refused to receive it on the following day november fourth the american minister at madrid general sickles was notified by cable in case of refusal of satisfactory reparation within twelve days from this date you will at the expiration of that time close your legation and leave madrid spain still gave no satisfactory reply and therefore on november fifteenth secretary fish again cabled if spain cannot redress these outrages the united states will nevertheless when the twelve days expired spain had not yielded nor did general sickles leave madrid 
as a matter of fact, the United States was in a most humiliating position. Its navy, under the corrupt administration of Secretary Robeson, had so degenerated that it did not possess a single fighting ship which could have met successfully the Spanish armored cruisers with their modern guns. Even the antiquated hulks still in commission were scattered and ill-equipped and time was necessary to collect them. The Spaniards knew this very well and sneered at all American protests. Finally, however, November 25th, President Grant resolved on war if war were necessary. Whatever losses the United States might at first sustain, in the end there could be no doubt of the result. Hence, another cablegram was sent to General Sickles at Madrid. If no accommodation is reached by the close of tomorrow, leave. When the morrow came, Spain proposed a sort of compromise. She would surrender the Virginius and would proceed against her own officials if it should be found that they had violated the treaty rights of the United States. She would not, however, in surrendering the Virginius, salute the flag of the United States nor offer any compensation for the men who had been done to death. This compromise was accepted by the American government. Note 20 page 536, partly because a war was then most undesirable, and partly because there was some serious doubt as to the regularity of the papers which the Virginius carried. It is now, indeed, quite certain that the Virginius was engaged in an unlawful errand and was conveying both men and ammunition to the Cuban rebels. Yet this circumstance did not justify her capture on the high seas or the execution of her crew and passengers by the sentence of a court-martial. When the Spaniards came to surrender the ship to American naval officers, they did so in a fashion that was full of insult. The surrender took place not in the harbor of Santiago, but in the secluded and lonely port of Bayahanda, where few could witness it, while before the delivery of the Virginius, the interior of the ship had been knocked to pieces and its decks smeared with excrement and other filth. This mortifying incident had not been forgotten by the American people and the memory of it gave poignancy to the anger with which they viewed the barbarities of Whaler. In 1896, both the Democratic and the Republican platforms had expressed sympathy with the Cuban people, and the Republican Declaration had even hinted at actual intervention by the United States. Such was the situation when President McKinley took office, and before long that situation became acute. End of Chapter 12, Part 1